0: our Lord and our Savior. Amen. We'll be seated, if you will, open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 1. And over the next four weeks or so, we're going to be looking at some selected passages in the book of Acts, and there'll be a couple of other messages that come after that that somewhat relate to what we will talk about during these next four weeks. But it occurred to me that after studying the Gospel of John for nearly 18 months, that it made sense for us to look briefly in the book of Acts and see what it is that has happened next. So we'll focus on these four passages as they relate to the mission of the church and our own corporate need to apply ourselves to fulfilling the mission of the church. And so what we're going to look at is we'll look at an attitude of expectancy We'll look at an attitude of fellowship, an attitude of courage, and an attitude of outreach. And as we look at these attitudes that are necessary for church growth, we should ask ourselves at the very beginning of this conversation, should the church grow? Should the church actually grow? I believe that as we apply the great commandment, which says that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind, and the next great commandment, to love one another as we love ourselves, when we take that and add it to the great commission which says that we are to go and make disciples, then it should be normal for us and it should be expected by us for the church to grow. So assuming that the church is to grow and we can agree that it should, in what ways should it grow? Of course it should grow spiritually. Those who are under its teaching, should mature in their faith. They should continue the journey of sanctification, being conformed to the image of Christ. But I believe the church should also grow numerically as mature members involve themselves in the Great Commission. Converts and those young in the faith should be brought in through our own ministry efforts so that they can be brought under the teaching of God's word and they can be encouraged in their own journey. I believe the church should also grow in its ministry as more and more members become mature and are able to help their help use are able to use their spiritual gifts to help others grow in their faith and evangelize and establish up others, not only should we be growing spiritually and numerically and in ministry, we should grow in our influence. As the members exercise their faith in daily life, engaging, excuse me, engaging the culture with truth, we should be having an influence in the world around us. You know, I thought about this. Politicians want to change the world. Educators want to change the world. Journalists want to make an impact and change the world. Entertainers and musicians and celebrities want to change the world. But it seems like Christians just want to get in their own little corner of the church and let the world do its own thing, and let me live my life quietly and privately, and I'll just leave that up to God. But the question is very simply this. Did God save us to be a part of building his kingdom, or did God save us so that we could occupy a seat in a church and mark time until we enter into eternity? Well, the church should grow in every way because it is the body of Christ Christ. And it has established, the church, to carry out his plans and his purposes in our lives today. As we studied the gospel, and Jesus said to Peter... I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We have to remember that the keys of the kingdom are the gospel message. It is our mandate, it is our mission to take the gospel message into the world so that it will be exposed, it can respond Others will come into the faith. We will grow in our influences, in our individual lives, and in the communities with which we live. And we will be about carrying out the plans and purposes that God has for our lives. So we're going to look at these four attitudes for church growth over the next four weeks. Our passage today, Jesus will have what is his final conversation with his disciples before he ascends back into heaven. For the very last time. So when Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives to his throne in glory, he left his disciples with an attitude of expectancy. Look with me in Acts chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 14, it's fairly lengthy but it goes quickly. Here's what we read. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them, "...over a period of forty days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, "'Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel?' He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot and Judas, the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So we're going to look at our passage of scripture today in four main points. First one is very simply the connection. The connection is verses 1 through 3, which is a reminder of what Luke had already done in writing his gospel. Dr. Luke, as he was affectionately known, wrote the gospel of Luke to this individual called Theophilus to explain to him who Jesus was, what Jesus did, and what all of this means for life in general. And so Luke goes on to the second part of this gospel, if you will. And what he does is he connects the gospel of Luke, the first account, with the book of Acts. He wants to connect the gospel of Luke with the book of Acts, which is also known as the Acts of the Apostles, which of which of course describes the apostolic ministry of the disciples and the founding of the church imagine if you had the four gospel accounts and you had the writings of Paul and Peter and John and the writing of Hebrew, and you did not have the book of Acts, there would be an enormous amount of questions that we would be asking, wouldn't there? And so Luke was inspired by God to write the book of Acts to explain to Theophilus and to readers throughout all of time exactly what it was that has happened as a result of the discipling ministry of Jesus to those that he called to be apostles. So Luke moves very quickly from this summary into what is the most important component in the book of Acts, and that is very simply the coming of the Holy Spirit and the empowerment of the apostles for the ministry to which they have been called. So this brings us to number two, and we're going to look at now the promise. The promise is found in verse 4. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard of from me. So this promise that Jesus is going to give to them is in the form of a command, and that command is to wait. Now, this command was originally given and recorded by Luke in Luke twenty-four, forty-nine. And he says there, Behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, the disciples had been coming and going from Jerusalem during the appearances over the period of 40 days. As we saw at the tail end of the Gospel of John, Jesus met them at the Sea of Galilee, which was quite a distance away from the city of Jerusalem. Jesus met them on at least the second Sunday after his resurrection. So the original command that Jesus gave to the disciples to stay in Jerusalem was not being followed because they had been in Galilee. So here we have another instruction of them to wait in Jerusalem. It isn't clear if this is a second command to stay in Jerusalem or if this is Luke simply repeating the original command that was given, as we read, in twenty four forty nine. Now, it seems likely that this is a second command because the wording is so different in this one than what we find in the first one. So they're being told, as they originally were, to wait in Jerusalem. Now, they're not in Jerusalem, as we find out a little bit later in the narrative. So they're being told to go to Jerusalem and wait. You know, this idea of waiting is mixed. It is met with great mixed emotion. It depends upon what it is we're being asked to wait for. Some of the most exciting times in life are times of great anticipation, times when we are waiting for something that is so exciting to us that we just can't ever envision that it's actually going to come. I remember as a young kid, Christmas was very special. We were incredibly poor, broken home, fragmented in so many ways, but Christmas was always very, very special. Not only, not only was there this intimate family gathering with aunts and uncles and grandmas and grandpas, but there was a mountain of gifts that was the envy and the delight of any child who ever thought about Christmas Day. Think about being a 15-year-old and waiting for your 16th birthday so you could finally get your driver's license. Incredible anticipation. What about thinking about getting married and having kids and getting out of college and having a family and buying your first home? There are periods in our lives that are so exciting and we meet them with such great anticipation and with an attitude of expectancy that our steps are light and they're filled with energy and our eyes are bright as we envision this seemingly distant future that's going to be here before we ever know it. Well, there is so much to be excited for and there is such a great sense of expectancy that disciples are being told to stay in Jerusalem or to go back into Jerusalem and to wait Wait for the fulfillment of the promise, and this promise is incredibly clear. It is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We read this in verse 5, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now this is very, very different from what was recorded in Luke twenty-four forty-nine. Stay in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power. Here he says you're going to be baptized. This is very specific, with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. So very clearly, this is at the very end of the 40 days of appearances. And in fact, we do know from this account that on this day, Jesus is going to ascend, and by account in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, he doesn't return again. So there is going to be the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and we have to ask ourselves a question. What does that mean? What does it mean to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? It means filling and indwelling. To be baptized in the Holy Spirit means to be filled with and to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, like all believers in the Old Testament, and like the current group of disciples, they experienced the Spirit's power for salvation and for life, as well as for special occasions of ministry. Now, we didn't study this in the Gospel of John, but it's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew that there was a period where Jesus sent the 70 out, remember, and they evangelized and they healed people. And it was because they had a temporary empowerment by the Holy Spirit for this special occasion of ministry. So in this new age that will be inaugurated on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit would permanently and dwell and empower all believers in a way that was very, very unique to anything that had ever been experienced before. In the New Testament, the word baptism always means to immerse. If you are baptized, it means you are taken into the water and you are immersed. That's what baptism means. So to be baptized in the Holy Spirit is to be immersed in Him. We are filled with Him. We are indwelt by Him. And we are sealed in our relationship with Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are some denominations that will argue that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a second experience a more complete filling. But I want to tell you, if you go into the lake, you're in the lake. You can't go into the lake any more than you already are if you are completely immersed in the lake. It would be like saying, you have been made completely wet by the Holy Spirit, but you're going to be made even more wet by the Holy Spirit. Well, how does something get more wet if it's already wet? How does something get immersed in the Holy Spirit if it's already been immersed in the Holy Spirit? Well, that's not what it's teaching. What it's teaching is the contrast between the old way and the new way. The new way, through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, these apostles and all believers will be indwelt by and will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, for believers post-Day of Pentecost... This filling and indwelling takes place immediately at conversion. For the disciples who are already saved, and Jesus said, You are already clean, as we studied in the Gospel of John, they are going to have this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which is delayed from their conversion experience. And this outpouring is going to come on the day of Pentecost. The first outpouring of the Holy Spirit was unique since it was intentionally delayed by the Father. Jesus has told them to go to Jerusalem and to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit that will come in just a few days. So if this is the 40th day, the day of Pentecost comes on the next Sabbath, which is not many days away. So Jesus has left them in an attitude of expectancy. We can see that expectancy verbalized here in verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? How many times have we heard that? How many times have they thought that? How many times have they assumed that this is what Jesus has come to do? They have not fully understood what the promise of the Holy Spirit means for them. They thought it might bring the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. This is what they thought all along that the Messiah was going to do. Jesus was heralded into Jerusalem at the triumphal entry because his followers believed that he was going to initiate the restoration of the kingdom of Israel at that time. Many, many times throughout Jesus' ministry, this is exactly what they thought was going to happen. They had experienced the fullness of his ministry, all that he taught, all the miracles he performed. They witnessed his death and burial. They were witnesses of his bodily resurrection. So what possibly could be next? Well, Jesus addresses their concern about their expectation of his restoring the kingdom of Israel. And he says to them in verse 7, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, what is interesting here is that Jesus does not deny a physical kingdom He does not say, well, you're mistaken, there isn't ever going to be a physical kingdom. He says, it's not for you to know the eras, that's what time and epics means, the era that God has fixed by his own authority, that the kingdom of Israel is going to be be restored. So if the disciples don't know when the physical kingdom is going to be restored, then we aren't going to know that either. That isn't to be our concern, and that is exactly why Jesus said what he said. We can imply that there is going to be the physical kingdom, but that's not what the coming of the Holy Spirit is all about. It's not the physical kingdom, but it is the power of God that is going to come upon you in just a few days. Verse 8a, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. It is power to do the work that God has called us to do. It is power to use our spiritual gifts in service to him. It's power to overcome the presence of sin and the bondage of sin in our life. It is the power of God to be his witnesses This is the primary purpose of the coming of the Spirit of God upon all believers. Our immersion, our indwelling, our infilling has a tremendous number of personal benefits to us, but its primary purpose is to be His witnesses. This is what they will be empowered to do. And this is what the book of Acts records for us. is exactly how they were empowered by him to be his witnesses. And this original group of believers turned the world upside down by the power of God. It wasn't because they were shrewd or because they were persuasive. It wasn't because they were popular. It was for no other reason except the power of God had come upon them in such a way that it totally changed the world. Notice what it says here in the second part of verse A. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. It is the power to fulfill the great commission to make disciples in all the world exactly as Jesus had told them to do Go and make disciples into all of the world. This is exactly what the coming of the Holy Spirit is going to empower them to do. Notice what Jesus says here. He says, you shall be my witnesses. We should circle or underline or highlight that word because it means we are going to be his witnesses. It doesn't mean that we might be doesn't mean that we could be, or that we should be, or that you can be if you want to. It means you are to be my witnesses. This is a very specific purpose of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, what we ought to also note in this description is where they are going to be his witnesses. In Jerusalem, where they were basically stationed in Judea the region or the state if you will that they lived in Samaria the group of people that they actually detested and to the remotest parts of the earth which is all gentile by the way and by the way they hated them too You are empowered to go into all of the world. Yes, those very places that you hate and you are to be my witnesses to those people that you despise because this is why I've called you to this ministry. And 2,000 years later, this is why I saved you and made you a part of my body. What Christians are called to do Primarily, is to evangelize and disciple. This is the church's primary mission. If the primary mission of the church is not to evangelize and disciple, what is? Now, there's a lot of good reasons for coming to church. We hear something that perhaps inspires us or expands our knowledge, Or we sing some of our favorite songs and we feel good about that. Or we get to see people that we have something in common with and we don't have a lot of that in the world or our workplace or in the community with which we live. So there's fellowship. There's all kinds of good reasons for us to come to church. And there's all kinds of secondary benefits of being a part of a church and why a church exists. But friend, the primary purpose of the church is to evangelize and disciple. If it isn't that, then we are going to miss the mark. I wonder what happens in the mind of Christ when the people that he has saved through his own death, the body that he has established in the birthing of a local congregation, says, Yeah, we get that, but we've got a lot going on. It's a real challenging stage of life. I'm too busy, I'm too old, I'm too tired, I'm too sick. Whatever the reason might be. I wonder how much it grieves the Spirit who indwells us when we say, that's just not my thing. I'll do what I can, I'll give what I can, I'll help as I can, but that's not my thing. Well, the next thing we see in our outline, number three, is the ascension. Verse 9. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So the ascension recorded here is his permanent physical departure. In this last earthly dialogue, meeting, encounter that he has with his disciples, Jesus leaves them with the promise of something great that is going to take place in their lives, and then he ascends and is received into the sky. They are to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit that will empower them to be witnesses for Jesus to the world. Now, I wonder how much they heard after, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. I wonder if they heard Judea or Samaria or the remotest parts of the earth. I guarantee you, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they heard it and they remembered it and they committed their lives to it. I'm not sure what they really understood, what it meant that they would be baptized in the Holy Spirit, but I'm sure they were pretty excited about what Jesus has just said to them. He's going to come back in the same way that he left. And it's important to know that Jesus didn't tell them to wait for my return he told them to wait for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit so they could be his witnesses to the world. The last thing they heard him say before he disappeared in their very, in their very eyes, you shall be my witnesses. There are so many people today that are preoccupied with when and how Jesus will return that they completely missed the purpose of his leaving Do you remember in our study, the Farewell Discourse, when Jesus said, I am going away and you cannot come, but it's better for you that I leave because when I leave, the Father will send the Holy Spirit who will be with you. He will be with you forever. He will empower you and strengthen you. You won't be dependent upon my physical presence. And although they didn't know it, believers all over the world would have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and would not need to depend upon the physical presence presence of Christ to do what he had called them to do. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit was predicated by Jesus's leaving, and this outpouring of the Holy Spirit is what enables these men to have the ministry that they've been called to. It's what enables us to have the ministry that we have been called to. It's what requires the presence of a local body of believers to do the work that they've been called to do, so that we can go into our little corner of the world and be his witnesses as we are supposed to be. By doing so, we participate in the growth of God's spiritual kingdom. Think about that for just a moment. God's kingdom is immense. It's beyond our ability to even begin to comprehend its size, its distance, its beauty, its activity. We can only marvel at what God's kingdom is going to be like, and you and I have been given a privilege to be a part of building that kingdom. I want to build a business. I want to build a family. I want to build a name. Okay? How about being a part of building something that is eternal in God's kingdom? Well, you know, that's not my thing. Bad stage of life, busy, sick, tired, old, whatever it might be. Number four in our outline the preparation. Verse 12 and 13. When they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which indicates that they weren't where Jesus told them to be, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot and Judas, the son of James. Verse 14, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. Now very, very quickly, this is the last time Mary the mother of Jesus is mentioned anywhere in the Bible. We also see in the tail end of this verse that his brothers are now a part of the believing community, which was left untold in the gospel account. So they weren't back in Jerusalem. They're at Mount Olivet, And now they are going back and they've gathered in the upper room. And most speculate that this is the same room as the Last Supper. It is probably also the same room where Jesus entered through the closed door and made his first appearance to the group of disciples. So they have gone back to this familiar upper room. But the preparation wasn't just to go to Jerusalem and wait to sit on their thumbs, or to go fishing, or just to go occupy yourselves. What did they do? They didn't just go and sit and wait. They went and prayed. They weren't praying for the coming of the Holy Spirit. That was already promised to them. They were simply praying. I would imagine that it was a prayer of great expectancy, at whatever this coming of the Holy Spirit was going to mean for me personally and for us as a group and for all that you have told us and taught us over these three years. Think about it. They've just seen the physical presence of Jesus vanish, never to come back again, and this is the only way they now have to communicate with God. They can't go down the street. They can't wait for him to come into the room. He's gone. And here they are communicating with him. The risen Christ is no longer with them. Perhaps they're praying that he would return very, very soon. Or perhaps they're praying for wisdom and guidance and direction. We don't know what it was they were praying about, but they were praying. And look at the description that we have. They were of one mind, which means they were united I would doubt very, very seriously if there was any conversation about who would hold what role in the kingdom. I doubt there was expressed concern about what was going to happen to Peter, what was going to happen to John, what was going to happen to the rest of the group. They were of one mind. They were united. And whatever that meant, they were praying about the same things. They were praying for the same reasons. And I would assume that they had the sense, the the same great sense of expectancy that was going to come from their time of praying. They were continually devoting themselves, meaning they were committed. They were committed to being together in prayer. This is what it was all about. You know, we think about prayer. And sadly for many, prayer is relegated to what happens before a meal. Good God, good meat thank you so much, let's eat. No real recollection of who he is or what he's done. In fact, I read this years ago. I don't know how accurate it is, but it said that statistically the average Christian prays less than three minutes a day, and if you remove the prayer that is said around a meal, it dwindles down to about a minute and a half. Is it any wonder why the church today isn 't committed to the mission of the church because we 're not a people of prayer whatever was God, whatever God was going to do, they were going to be prepared, and they were going to be prepared through prayer. Prayer is where we expectantly communicate what we believe God is going to do it 's where we claim His promises. It's where we submit ourselves to his purposes. It's where we ask for his strength in carrying it out. It's where we thank him and express our love for him, for his faithfulness, for his goodness, for his forgiveness, and for this great gift of salvation that he has given to me through no doing of my own. Our prayers shouldn't be relegated to God, please help me get through this day, but God help me serve you this day, help me live according to your plans and your purposes. No matter how hard or bad or frustrating our day or our week or our month might be, we need to pray that we would be a part of building God's purposes in this world. I want you to do something for me. I want you to turn your bulletin over on the back. And in that left-hand column, there is a listing of biblical commitments that our church has adopted from its very founding. Would you look what it says, a couple of items down. It says prayer, both personal and as a body, as an expression of dependence on God. Let me ask you this question. To what degree are we united in and devoted to prayer individually and corporately? When do we gather together and pray together about the mission and the purpose and the influence of our church? It's whatever takes place in our corporate worship service, right? And in the prayer that is prayed, how much of that is Intentionally devoted to our carrying out the Great Commission, to our utilizing our spiritual gifts, to our being a part of building God's eternal kingdom. See, folks, I believe that we need to establish a formal, organized prayer ministry that will position our church to be prepared for what God wants to do through Grace Fellowship Church. And how he wants to use each of us in this mission. I believe that we, that, that as we are united in and committed to prayer as a church, we will be able to wait with great expectancy on what the Lord wants to do. But the question is this What do we personally expect God to do through us? What do you expect God to do through you? Anything at all? Are we living day by day expecting the Holy Spirit to make a difference in our lives and in his kingdom? Do we expect him to open the word of God to us? Do we expect him to counsel us, to lead us, to guide us? Do we expect him to lead us into Christian growth? What do we expect God to do in our community and the lives of people not here through the ministries of Grace Fellowship Church? Do we expect anything at all, or are we simply marking time consumed with and preoccupied by by our own problems and priorities? Our salvation, our being immersed in the Holy Spirit has a purpose in mind, and it should be the fulfillment of the spiritual kingdom of God in our little corner of the world, through the church that we attend and support and invest ourselves in. We've already been given the Holy Spirit to empower us to live victoriously and to be useful to him in the building of his kingdom. The question comes down to this, do we want to be used? Do we want to be involved? Are we willing to be united in desire and purpose and ministry? Or are we going to say, I'm too busy I'm just a bad stage of life. Sounds real good, but that's not my thing. Why don't you do this? Look around this room. Is there a valid reason why this room should not be full because the people of God who have been redeemed by God Are so overjoyed with the good God that we know that we just can't not tell somebody about it? Has He not done such a remarkable work in our life that we are not compelled to share that with someone else? Do we not know anybody who would be benefited by knowing something about this God that we claim to be so good and so loving and so faithful and so merciful? A God that we can count on. A God who is always there. A God who has saved a wretched sinner like me. Do we not know anybody that would benefit from knowing that information? You see... The growth of our church doesn't depend upon you. It depends upon the God who empowers you to do what he's called you to do, what he has gifted you to do, what he's given you a passion to do. But when we don't hold this salvation in the front of our mind and of our eyes Our lives get preoccupied with something completely different. We ought to have such a great expectancy of a work that God will do that can only be explained by him that we just burst at the seams, praying and hoping that we'll be able to see that. Because, friend, if we aren't praying for that, and if we aren't investing ourselves in that, the very likely prospect is this the lampstand of Grace Fellowship Church will be snuffed out and something else other than a church will occupy this facility and do something other than teach the word of God to a group of people who are eager to hear and learn, apply and do whatever this God calls them to do. Will we be involved? Are we willing to do what it takes? Are we willing to trust and a God of the impossible? Or will we listen to the enemy that says, I'm too small, I'm too weak, I'm too frail, I'm too uneducated, I'm too busy, I just don't think God can do anything through me. Well, my friend, I want you to go back and remind yourself of the people in the Bible that God chose to do incredible things through. Who was Paul? Paul was a highly educated, murderous Pharisee who was responsible for the conversion of millions and millions of people. Who is Peter? Peter's just an uneducated fisherman who turns Jerusalem on its heels doing what God has called him to do. It doesn't matter how young you are, how inexperienced you are, how unqualified you think you might be. I promise you this, if you want to be used by God to be a part of building his kingdom, he is going to do it. Do you want it? Do we need it? Do we truly believe that God will do it? This is why we continually remind ourselves that we are a people of little faith, who are challenged by such an overwhelming presence of sin and an enemy that will use anything and everything he can to stop us from doing what God has called us to do. We need to put on the armor of God. We need to strap our boots on tight and we need to be able to say, I'm going to stand and I'm going to do what God has called me to do and I'm going to believe that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Would you pray with me? Father, how we need a fresh work of your spirit in us, all of us. There's no exception. Father, I pray that with whatever we know and celebrate about your goodness and your faithfulness and our understanding of who you are and what it is you've called us to do, that through the work of your spirit, you would multiply that exponentially in our heart and in our spirit. God, I pray that you would birth within each and every one of us an unquenchable desire to be a part of building your kingdom through this church. Not just for the sake of our own legacy, not just so this church will continue to be a presence in our little corner of the world, but so that we would be faithful to the commission that you've given each and every one of us and that you have birthed this church to complete, and that is to evangelize and to disciple because you are a gracious, loving, merciful God that this lost and dying and hellbound world needs to know. God, I thank you that we have so much to give you thanks for. There's so many, there's so many things that our hearts overflow with in gratitude towards you. And I pray that through the difficult days and the challenging periods of life that our love for you, our praise of you, our worship of you, our desire to serve you would never be diminished by what's going on around us. God, would you do in and through us the impossible so that we would be able to give you glory for allowing us to be a part of building your eternal kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing.